Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Petko Stoyanov and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of To The Point Podcast. I'm Rachel Lyon, here with my co-host, Petko Stoyanov. Petco, this is like uh, two in one day. How you feeling? <laughs> I'm feeling great. You know, know. You're, you're, we're going to talk about my I favorite know. topic, or at least <laughs> it feels like it. Uh, z- zero trust. You know, let's put some zero trust in that. <laughs> I, I just saw a zero box that had the word zero on the front of it. And I, I'm going to call zero well, trust, but it was talking about zero calories. Because this is going to be a fun conversation. Uh, we've got Eric Mill joining us today. He currently serves in the Office of Management and Budget as a Senior Advisor on Technology and Cybersecurity to the Federal Chief Information Officer. Um, welcome to the podcast, Eric. You have such a great background. I can't wait for today's discussion. Uh, thanks, Rachel. Thanks for having me here. So, Pecco, I'm going to let you lead this one off because I know this is your favorite, favorite topic. Yeah. Uh, so Eric, can you tell, I mean, we can talk into zero trust, but I'd love to get your take on, you've worked everything from nonprofit to industry to government. Can you give us consensus, just a high level? Yeah, uh, sure. Absolutely. So um, I started work as a software engineer for about a you know, basically in, in the working world for the last two decades, I've, I've been, I was a software engineer for a decade and in policy and product for a decade with some overlap. Um, and so I, uh, I graduated school in 05 into what was not a not yet recovered from the dot-com bust uh, field in computer science, uh, wanted to do web development. And uh, I also just sort of you know, was a child of the 90s uh, in, in a very nice chill period um, with not much going on in the U.S. world anyway, between the Berlin Wall and 9-11. And uh, I, you know, was able to just kind of really enjoy being on the Internet and kind of fall in love with the early web and uh, just wanted to do web development for a long time. So I, I did that for several years, uh, eventually found my way to D.C. into a nonprofit uh, called the Sunlight Foundation, uh, which is a transparency nonprofit that does not exist anymore, um, but was a round of 50-person strong uh, nonprofit that in, in other countries would be called an anti-corruption organization, an anti-corruption NGO. Uh, in, but uh, in the U.S., you know, really f- a focus on government transparency. And I did a lot with legislative and executive branch data, made APIs, made uh, you know, scraped data sets off of websites, made apps for people to use those things to try to model what government could do. And uh, then I was eventually enticed to, to go join the government at GSA in, uh, when the 18F Digital Service Wing started up around the same time that the U.S. Digital Service did. And um, I started very quickly getting into policy and also getting really more into cybersecurity. I ended up uh, working closely with OMB on a... Uh, uh, basically an HTTPS everywhere for federal Mm -hmm. government policy, uh, which uh, sort of, you know, was a little unusual from the digital service space to be working on policy stuff, but it it worked out and uh, ultimately was a fairly successful policy. And, uh, you know, it really is now the default to have that in the federal government. And uh, once I had done that, I started getting more drawn in to policy work in the federal government as well as cybersecurity, started working with OMB more uh, with the office that I work at now. And uh, then after about five years of that, I worked for the Senate on election security for a time, 
Uh, just just spent uh, a year before this job out in the tech sector working leading security for a web browser. And then um, I just returned at the top of this administration uh, early last year. Wow. And Eric, I got to ask for those no, that no, go are ahead, in go. Go ahead. I was going to yeah. take a slow Go ahead, step. Rachel. No, I was like, wow, it's such a background with, you know, you went from web to policy to cyber to, awesome. hey, I'm not going to work in government. I'm going to go to industry and then go back to government. Like, you know, it, it's such a dynamic, diverse, but at the same time, what have you, you know, what have you learned from industry? Yeah, and I mean, you know, I, I got to ask it that. It was really helpful for me working in the private sector for the first few years of my career because that really, you know, I just spent about three or four years at for-profit organizations just becoming decent at a craft, right? right? And, you know, getting the discipline of software engineering, mm -hmm. just really focused on results. Uh, and, you know, there's this thing too about, software in general, I think, where, um, you know, it, it is, it is kind of this weird priesthood, honestly, in society where, uh, you know, it, it feels impenetrable for people to think about and reason about and, and, and can often feel a little unnecessarily magical. And I think that was really helpful for me too, just to understand like, nope, this is just everything in the world is made out of this. And it's, just a matter of getting to understand it a bit and working with it and you can you can sort of bend it to your service. Um, and that, that really shaped my relationship with technology. And I think, I, I know when I came into, well, into a nonprofit as well as into government, like it, it helped to have some of that discipline that I, I got in the outside world. But one of the other things it really left me with, and this, um, you know, when I was at GSA and now, now OMB, a really guiding principle for me is how important it is to like have everybody's incentives be aligned. Like it is just one big world and country that we're in and everybody's kind of in their own bubble, like private sectors in their bubble and doesn't really understand what the heck is happening inside the government. Uh, well, I, before I joined government, I thought it was very boring inside uh, and I was very wrong. And in government, you have your own special bubble and you really don't know what's going on outside there. And uh, I, I think for me, just it, it is clearly to everybody's benefit when... Um, you know, especially when we look at technology, which is this cross-cutting strata underneath everything that like we should all be trying to march in the same direction, right? I, the HTTPS thing is a great example, right? It's, it's good for people, good for government, right. good for security, good for privacy. And, um, it, but sometimes it's a matter of taking things that feel in competition with other things in their own bubbles and just trying to make sure we're all like, you know, we see what is happening. Absolutely. And by the way, you, you didn't talk about um, when you were at GSA, I think you had also launched a public bug bounty and vulnerability disclosure policy. Yes? That's right. Yeah, I really uh, was really very proud of that. We were the first, uh, I mean, really all credit in a big way has to be given to the Department of the Defense and mm -hmm. uh, the Defense Digital Service within it for a launching hack, the Pentagon, uh, in forget exactly what year, I think it was 2016, um, it was a hugely influential move, helped make a lot of arguments within the government much smoother um, mm -hmm. for things like that going forward. Um, but um, one of the things we we're really happy that we were able to do at GSA is, I mean, for one, just launch a general vulnerability disclosure policy with industry mm -hmm. standard norms, uh, which to, for folks not familiar, um, you don't have to pay money and pay bounties to, to do this sort of thing. A vulnerable disclosure program uh, like the one that we ran was just a way of saying, if you find something here so you can safely report it, um, with norms of safety worked out in both directions. Right. Um, so that we, we know that we're not, 
you know, we as the government are not going to get hit with a report that's like, well, this is going public tomorrow. Right. Hope, you know, hope you weren't doing anything this weekend. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and they can also feel safe that, right. you know, they're not going to get a nasty gram from a lawyer afterwards. Right. And, and those, you know, and even if those fears are not like, you know, even if there's a mix of perception and reality to them, like it's really important to put them yes. to rest. And yes. So, so yeah, we did the first in the civilian government, the first full disclosure program, and we set up a bug bounty as well um, uh, for the for some of our most mature programs, and that was a really powerful experience. That you know, it was uh, it was something where I was also you know able to see and interact quite a bit with folks in the outside world and just go kind of go back and forth with them about the technical impact of different things. And served me very well in the Senate because one of my um, my main focus areas there. Uh, I worked for the Senate Rules Committee, which has jurisdiction over federal elections and campaigns, was on vulnerability disclosure, um, and uh, and and you know getting vulnerabilities reported in the most constructive way possible in election systems, and that was 2019. A lot of that was on a lot of people's minds. Yes. Uh, something of a simpler time, even in retrospect, but um, but yeah, very helpful. Eric, you've been part of so much of the you know of the you know, let's encrypt everything to let's make sure we've got the right vulnerabilities identified at the right time. I'm, you know, you, you must've been part of the zero trust initiative that came out of OMB. I'd love to get your take on, I mean, zero trust feels like it's a, a buzzword bingo at this point. And every customer, every vendor, anyone that I've talked to will say, I want zero trust, but I have no idea what it means, you know, or, and then they, it becomes, you know, everyone puts zero trust in front of every product it feels like now, but I'd love to get your take on what's the, What's the premise, the principles that Zero is trying to do? Like, how do we get to where we are that, you know, made the Absolutely. OMB do so, what it's doing? Yeah, let's zoom out a little bit. Um, so first first about, so yes, OMB released uh, at the top of this year what we call the Federal Zero Trust Strategy. And it's one of the many things that we did as a result of last year's cybersecurity executive order. So that executive order was a big sweeping response to a couple of big national events in cybersecurity. And uh, it, it, it called for a whole host of things from different agencies, um, some of which affects the private sector, some of which is geared towards agency operations. Um, for those not familiar, I mean, you have an audience, you, I know you focus a lot on federal government issues, but um, for those not familiar, the Office of Management and Budget is the part of the White House that tends to focus on how agencies work. Um, and the Office of the Federal CIO, Federal Chief Information Officer, is part of the sort of management side of OMB that is responsible for policy and cybersecurity of agency operations. So that HTTPS memo that I mentioned earlier, for example, from 2015, was issued by this office. Um, and the Cybersecurity Executive Order, which is a, a you know, product of the whole White House, calls for many things. OMB is called upon a number of times in it to provide guidance to federal agencies um, in a number of areas. And so one of them was, was zero trust. Uh, and you know, this also, I think, ends up functioning in many ways as sort of our you know, umbrella cybersecurity initiative for the Biden administration from OMB. Um, you know, it, and it references a few other memos in it that also came out of the same executive order, um, but really covers a, a, a sweeping set of ground. So, so zooming out on what zero trust is and you know I think we observe some similar things right that like is it, it it's a heavily used term and it, it can 
be applied to many kinds of different things. And, you know, when words get into that state, which obviously is to some extent a measure of success, right? But when it, when it gets into that state, it, it can be a little hard to, to grab onto it, right? Um, and so what we wanted to do was take the very serious and important principles at the heart of what Zero Trust is meant to be and and try to grab onto them where we can and and say, okay, you know, in these areas, these are going to be some of the most important things we could ask you to do uh, over the next few years. Some of them short term, some of them medium term, and some of them really, you know, beginning the beginning of a longer term shift. Um, but let's you know try to break them into into you know reasonably organized themes. Uh, it's it's you know, we we did not want to do a big reference architecture of every single possible thing you could think of. We at least other people are doing that. Those are very important. The Department of Defense has done a great one. Um, we're very focused on for the civilian government. What are the key areas that both represent the the most important principles that zero trust is meant to meant to to contain, and then what are some of the the, the most significant technical priorities that. You know, if we could see agencies do these things, we'll feel in a much better place. Um, Zero Trust, has, you know, comes out of this history. I mean, you, I, if you have a few different guests on your podcast, you may get different takes on exactly this. This, but you know, the take that I will give you is um, you know, Zero Trust really emerged from this push towards least privilege and preventing lateral movement. Um, the the like techie. <laughs> way I've heard some people like to put it is saying, well, it really should be zero implicit trust. Um, because what it is uh, trying to do is to, it's, it's not literally that you could just never have any trust in people or in, in components or anything, but it's trying to have you actually reason more explicitly about where that trust is and so that you can put it in the place that you can manage it effectively, as opposed to just kind of letting it sprawl throughout your organization. So, you know, I think it's fair to say that the, the, the original and sort of classic example of this is the concept of, you know, your internal network, your VPN, your intranet, uh, where, you know, and, and this, this is changing now as we all go through this, but conventionally and still in many places, you know, for the last, you know, one or two decades, um, you know, there has been this model of the network perimeter uh, that, um, you know, when you get through that gate, you have a lot of stuff that you can just talk to and see and visit within your organization um, by connecting at that layer. And that puts a lot of implicit trust in that network, right? So if, if you can, if just by virtue of, you know, having your IP address come from a particular range, you can all of a sudden see and access some things uh, that you otherwise couldn't, then you have put a whole lot of trust in the really any network component that might allow you to get an IP address in that range, right? Just to put it in the kind of the technical language of it. But that that's, it's actually not, you know, it, it as the world has gone on, it's, it's really, you know, you, you have to expect that eventually an adversary is going to be able to get to, to emit some requests from your, from inside your network. The classic example of that is, you know, just phishing an employee successfully and getting them to open uh, an unsafe attachment uh, or something, that was uh, the publicly uh, disclosed and uh, famous example in the Aurora uh, attack that Google disclosed back in, I, I want to say, 2009. Um, there's, you know, an unsafe flash version, and, and uh, you know, then somebody has a, a vantage point from within your organization. And 
I think we, we try to say this in the strategy really as explicitly as we can, which is that you just have to basically prepare for any one piece of your organization to be compromised at any given time um, and try to construct something that is resilient to that. So, you know, in security, in, in InfoSec land, it's called the principle of, well, there's, there's a few different principles there, but one of them is the principle of least privilege, that you want to um, take each of your components and give, and give them only the amount of privilege as necessary, right? So if you have a monitoring tool in place with, on a server or on your network, or on a phone or whatever, you you would like you should constrain <laughs> that tool to just be able to read stuff and not be able to actually change anything on the device that it's on. So that you know, yes, if it's working in the way it was intended, there's no risk. But if it is compromised, then you want to limit the adversary to just monitor, right? Um, that's as a simple example. But that that that's an eternal principle of information security that um, you know we try to reflect in our strategy and I, that I think a number of the security initiatives that are most interesting and successful in the world today are, are trying to you know, deliver in a way that is reasonably easy and not burdensome and interoperable for people. So um, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's, that's one take. Eric, the way you make it sound more, I think, I mean, and most people are familiar with zero trust for network access, but zero trust has got multiple pillars in the way system defines them. There's the identity, the device, the network but then the app, but it's it, in the way you're describing, it makes me start thinking about it's almost taking multi-factor, you know, instead of just one factor, but multi-factor across all your applications. So don't just verify based on the fact that there's an IP. Don't just verify based on credential, but verify based on the credential, the device they're coming from, you've checked the device, maybe the network, and then give them access. So if you've got to hit all three and it's extremely difficult to hit all yeah. two at the same time. That's, that's you know, not a bad way of thinking about it. Um, you know, it's interesting because you've seen some of the big organizations, Google and Microsoft are the most prominent, both actually move to an, sort of an internet first model where they don't even have an internet or are moving in that direction. Mm -hmm. um, but then you also see organizations, you know, uh, there's, there's a big focus on secure access service edge things um, that, you know, sort of move the network tunneling to this kind of per app model, more constrained space. And you, you can find stuff all along the, the spectrum. But, I, you know, Petco, I think what you said, the most important thing is that you're combining information about people, devices, time, space. You're, you're taking more information that, than you previously had available to you and then trying to make good use of it to make decisions. And not just to lock things down harder, right, but to also be able to grant access in a more resilient way as well. Um, so that, you know, because that's, this is one of the things that, um, you know, we try to reflect in both how we wrote our strategy and how we oversee it is that um, anything like this, like it can't, if you want to have the buy-in of your organization for, for more than a minute, right? It, this, this can't, you know, be ushering them into a drearier era uh, with you know how they go about their business and not able to perform the mission it won't that won't work and but that's one of uh, the you know this is something where in theory there's a number of areas here in zero trust where you can have a bit of your cake and eat it too where the more secure thing can also lead to be the more usable thing you see that in how multi-factor authentication is evolving you also see that in what you can do with the the heuristics like you're talking about where you can become more comfortable knowing where to be more flexible with your employees 
because you can see that that's not where the risk is as much. So you can focus your you know sort of security attention and scrutiny on the places that are more risky. So, so I'm kind of curious if you're an organization or you're an agency in the government, you know, you've built this gate guards and guns, castle moat infrastructure going to like an internet first or a zero trust mindset. Like that's not an easy change overnight. And and what would an organ, an agency or an organization like? How would they budget for something like that? Because that's like it feels like where do you start first? Like how do you budget for it? I'd love to get your thoughts on that. And maybe what OMB thinks about how agencies should yeah, take advantage I'm, of I this. I mean, certainly we are talking it. about multi-year initiatives for especially for large organizations who are not in greenfield situations, right? Have just tons of interest, and they also one thing that is sometimes easy to forget for folks outside the government is how federated and decentralized many of these large cabinet level agencies are right and so it's not as there it's not always as simple as just having like the security team of the agency get some stuff set up and deploy it um so in that environment um and you know and obviously the 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 federal budgeting environment is is a complicated place which involves two branches of government working together um but, you know, agencies are taking a variety of approaches. You see in our, in our zero trust strategy, we ask for funding estimates for, um, for agencies over a few fiscal years for what they could, what they would need to accomplish the things that we're asking of them, um, knowing that that's going to vary quite a bit um, on the kind of agency where they are in different areas. Um, we also have, uh, it's been one of the big focus areas for the Technology Modernization Fund, um, for those not familiar, the Technology Modernization Fund is um, it, it's administered out of GSA. It is uh, there's a board that is chaired by by my boss, the Federal Chief Information Officer Claire Claire Martirana, um, and along with other technology leaders from around the government. Uh, the American Rescue Plan, the reconciliation bill or law from uh, early 2021, at the top of this administration, provided uh, a billion dollars with a B into the Technology Modernization Fund. Um, a significant amount of that has been awarded, and uh, one of its big focus areas has been zero trust. So um, we awarded in the first set of awards from that, there were three agencies that received money for zero trust architecture. There have been some more since, um, and that's going to continue to be a focus area for, for that fund. The Technology Modernization Fund um, is able to, you know, it's it's a an executive branch administered fund that is able to, you know, it, and it oversees things with sound fiscal principles and gives out money in tranches and has metrics and performance associated. Um, but it's something that, you know, can, uh, can supplement the different efforts that agencies and, and, and government are engaged in to try to get folks reasonable cybersecurity funding, um, and especially to be able to surge at different times to meet acute needs like we are experiencing. Yeah, I think that's the key is the, the surge because most government has, hey, we're budgets flat or we're up a small percentage, you know, think so security kind of thing. And then, wait, I have to spend how much to make this change? I don't have that in the budget. And this allows them to kind of, with the prior coordination and planning, you know, plan for the change or organizational structural change. Uh, that's awesome. It, it You know, before uh, we were talking about an interesting topic and how cybersecurity prior to this recording, you said, and you used a word which I was like, it's really interesting. You said cybersecurity is really about democratizing the investment, or how did you phrase it? I wanna, don't wanna mess up the words there. You, you had such an eloquent I, way of I'm, saying I'm it, but not, I think I'm it not remembering the sentence you're talking about, unfortunately. Uh, democracy <laughs> investment, is that? 
Yeah. Oh, oh, from you talked about it. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 So, you know, that's for me, as I mentioned, I used to work for a nonprofit focused on, you know, building, building robust democracies and and having a more effective government. And I I was a part of our international program. And I, I, so I traveled around the world a little bit, getting to know how governments worked, how legislatures worked in, in other countries. And, um, you know, left me with a profound respect for the sort of the community of folks around the world and in the United States working to support democracy. And, you know, it helps you not take it for granted. Right. Um, and that, that is only more apparent with the passage of time. Uh, and, you know, I, I didn't always work on cybersecurity. I, I've only really been working on security things for, I don't know, eight, nine years, something like that. And um, for me, uh, I really want to, you know, the reason I keep putting my time into that is so that um, we can, you know, continue to make a more stable world uh, that, you know, creates a overall better situation for, you know, for people and society to, to thrive. And it, the, really the, the guarantees you want with a world that is uh, more secure from an information perspective is they're very similar to the goals of what you want from a more democratic world. Um, and I, I do think that when people look around and, you know, they see important institutions having a difficult time securing themselves from um, all sorts of different kinds of actors, some very imposing and sophisticated and, and some less so. Um, and, you know, as year, year after year goes by and it just doesn't seem like things are very stable and, may, you know, you, you've maybe... Various people on this call have had their information breached at one point or another. Right? That doesn't that doesn't help with the struggles that we face um, around you know building a more trustworthy government and 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 showing people that democracy can work. And so for me, that's been a through line in my career, and I, I do think that it's particularly salient right now. Yeah. I guess you could say it's if you invest in cybersecurity, you're really investing in democracy when you think about it, because the core of cybersecurity is the availability, the integrity. And those are just the core principles of any government or any institution, any organization you might have. You know, the data, the email you receive from whitehouse.gov, you hope it's whitehouse.gov. You checked and it's not some other email address from decades ago that you might have right. seen. And the website you're going to is that because you trust them. Integrity and availability are such key elements and of the government. And certain parts it is of more than cybersecurity, well, right? I mean, that, I think there security. was a big wake-up call when healthcare.gov struggled in its launch some years ago that, you know, certainly contributed to mm-hmm. the um, creation of multiple digital service teams in the government and, uh, and, and many people entering tech policy from the technology community who hadn't previously thought about it. Um, and that's, you know, cybersecurity, like other parts of digital service delivery, it's like, well, the social contract is now implemented through software. So I hope it works and I hope it works well. <laughs> Speaking of social, though, I mean, it's can we can we segue a little bit? Um, you know, it's because you've you've had this really robust career. I'd be interested in kind of um, you know we're always like, how do we get ahead of the cybersecurity threat? Um, you know, and you, and you look at things like social media and social engineering. Um, you know, and and how do you mitigate things like that? I mean, it's you know, is, is that a policy discussion? I guess, Eric, given your background, but I, it's something that I, I think about a lot. You know, how do you how do we get ahead of this? Um, and you know, there's new social networks created all the time. I'm a big fan of TikTok. I'll admit it, and you know, I, I read all the the concerns with that. But um, but you know, how do you 
how do we address it? Yeah, it is obviously that's, you know, you're talking about one of the issues of our time. It is a multidimensional problem with both policy and technical issues. Um, I, you know, I don't know that I could do a fulsome coverage of all of the different policy engagements that could tackle misinformation here. But I I will say there are, though, a couple, I will point to a couple of areas in our zero trust strategy that do Mm -hmm. try to speak to some of this stuff, right? So, Mm -hmm. um, you you mentioned social engineering and and with with phishing being a very close cousin of that. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I would say possibly, you know, one of the places we're, Maybe our most aggressive piece of our zero trust strategy is on uh, making the federal government technically resilient to phishing and social engineering. Um, and it is social engineering is a big part of that. I mean, phishing is you know people understand phishing as you know trying to fool you into going to a fake right. site or something, and that's true. But actually, more recently too, you've seen. Uh, simpler, more, more dispiriting attacks on organizations um, and companies that are even just, you know, taking advantage of, uh, I think the word people are coining for it is MFA fatigue, right? Like push notifications yes. sent yes. to phones until you just give up and hit approve, um, <laughs> which some small percentage of people will do. And, and mm-hmm. if your organization isn't, um, you know, isn't ready for that, it might, might just take one. Uh, so, you know, that's, I think one of the reasons that I continue to enjoy working in this field is that um, it can, while it can be easy to feel like, you know, a little nihilistic sometimes in the field of security, the fact is there's a lot of really important developments that work, you know, in technology that work very well um, and can actually stop a lot of attacks. There's obviously reasons why these things aren't adopted everywhere, you know, with a snap of the fingers and organizational change and consumer habit change is hard. Um, but, you know, newer approaches to multi-factor authentication actually, you know, have really studied how phishing and social engineering work in the wild. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you have things like FIDO, which is a, a newer industry standard in mm-hmm. multi-factor authentication, um, as well, you know, the federal government has pit. Oh, yeah. What's FIDO? What is... Can you talk more about yeah, FIDO? I'm yeah, I, I, I mean, would love to. I see it. A, oh, and, it builds on just to, to resist cap that sentence, You know what FIDO and and PIV and so the federal government do is they um, they are designed to make phishing as you see it today and the kind of social engineering as I described actually technically infeasible. So FIDO in particular, um, it, there's a, a group called the FIDO Alliance, which is a collection of mostly companies and industry, although there's some government agency involvement. Um, included like NIST is a member. Um, they, uh, you know, they've for the last uh, around ten years been developing standards that can be implemented across actually a whole variety of different spaces that all share this property of being resistant to phishing uh, as it is practiced today and social engineering and uh, basically taking a bunch of common attacks off the table. Um, so I, I'll, I'll give the brief description here of like sort of the core piece of it, right? Um, the, maybe the thing that most people might be familiar with in their lives is the portable key um, that you can carry around on your keychain or inside your laptop, mm-hmm. um, where uh, after you put in your credentials, you hit the button on the key and, and it goes forth. Um, the the thing, the key innovation there that uh, makes it impossible for somebody to fish you if you have to go through one of those keys 
is that when you register the key to a website, the key remembers the name of the website. So if you register it with, you know, yahoo.com, and then somebody fools you into going to yah0o.com, you may miss that with your uh, your fallible human brain, but the the key will notice that and will just not work. And so, um, so that that basic idea like takes a number of of traditional kinds of phishing attacks off the table, even the automated ones um, that work very effectively and can you know. I think that this is the other thing. This was especially true when we really started on the federal zero trust strategy. Um, was that there still uh, was not necessarily this. Um, universally understood threat model of why most multi-factor fails, right? Um, because if if you are going to a website and you're typing your username and password and, and you think you're on the real one, so you have no problem typing your username and password, there's really no reason why you wouldn't also type in the six-digit number uh, off of your app or that you got texted. And so all an attacker has to do is just make sure that in real time, like, they're loaded in your username and password and causing you to get texted or whatever. Um, and they could just ferry all that stuff back and forth. And so that, that, that stuff all falls. Um, so to get back to your question, uh, a lot of people know FIDO from the keys. Uh, there, however, in more recent years, you actually see this baked into laptops and phones. So, um, you know, the fingerprint reader on your laptop or on the back of your phone or on the front of your phone or the uh, face ID uh, system that is all, that also can be built into phones or into laptops. Um, you can essentially register your phone or laptop itself as a device, as like a, a factor, um, as you log in, and um, and that just reusing the way you already log in to your laptop or your phone. So you don't even have to learn anything or carrying anything around. Um, so that's that's a th these are recent. I mean, this core tech has been around for a while, but is is now starting to actually permeate out into the mm -hmm. ecosystem, into industry and into government, um, and actually can take some of these things that continue to feel like a scourge on us and right. and make them hard to pull off. It's, it's, I think I saw Microsoft, Google, and Apple are part of this FIDO alliance and also the, as they're calling it, passwordless, if you will. You know, you can log in. And, and I think, and I, I know that Apple just came out with, along with FIDO, yes. they're kind of working this thing called pass keys, where if I go to a certain website, instead of me having to pick a password for that website, I'll let it generate one cryptography on the device. And then when I have to log into it, I just provide my thumbprint, if you will, and it logs in for me. So if we take the principle of, I know I have friends who always ask me, you know, on planes are like, well, what should I do as an individual to protect myself from cybersecurity? And I start with MFA and then I say, get a password manager is the second thing and get a unique password for every single website. In a way, this provides a unique one time, you know, password for every single yep, website. No, that's right. And I, I, I mean, I think, you know, you, when you look around, you see ish efforts to make this stuff passwordless and that th those are, you know, that, that feels like where things are going. Right. And, and I think I have a password manager and I recommend everybody that they use one as well. I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to win at convincing people to like everybody around me to have, you know, 200 websites in their password manager that they that they that they've set up and it probably is important for us to, to move beyond that the federal government is actually in many ways ahead of its time on this because for a long time we have had piv piv personal identity verification these cards that are issued and we do passwordless mm -hmm. authentication for all kinds of things in the federal government um 
one of the issues that we face is that um, you know the the way in which Piv works, the technical protocols under the hood, um, you know, work okay for an enterprise like the federal government, but haven't proven to work that well for other organizations or or for regular people. Um, and uh, for a number of reasons, you know, it has it has taken uh, other efforts, FIDOs being the premier one, to start making something that can kind of transcend those boundaries across enterprise, personal use, and just kind of bring in new patterns that, that seem to interoperate very well. I'm, I'm still remembering back when the PIV came out and you had HSPD-12 and all these other policies that started consolidating. It, so, if, I mean, it sounds like the, the government's going, going ahead of password lists and going beyond that. Where do you think cyber and password lists or FIDO is going for? Well, for I think OMB what we're focused on the so in the federal zero trust strategy, what we say there is, you know, from a policy perspective, we're just insisting on phishing resistant authentication being used all the time, right? And I think it's that all the time that is. Um, is the challenging part, right? So, you know, as I mentioned, you, you can find PIV all over the federal government, um, but for a variety of reasons, technical reasons, human reasons, it, uh, policy reasons, it, it, it rarely is able to cover 100% of the situations people find themselves in all the time in their work. And so many agencies have all kinds of different recovery flows, alternate things um, that, that support work. And... You know what we what we say in the federal zero trust is we really are, we expect that there's going to have to be alternatives to PIV that are used alongside it, and uh, in order to create a consistent bar um, where we don't have to have these methods that we know fall somewhat trivially to a motivated actor, we that we don't need to have those around <laughs> in in the federal government. Over time, um, I mean, there, there's, you know, I think that's that has been the reality in the federal government for for a while, which is we have a lot of a lot of use of PIV, and PIV is very ahead of its time and very powerful. And then there's all these little, you know, cases that it can't handle. And so what we need is a strategy that um, brings agencies to a place where they are using a variety of phishing resistant tools and form factors and giving options to their staff, so that you know through the actual you know, entropy of life and mission delivery as people experience it, they're able to keep to that high standard. Yeah. Eric, it's kind of interesting. Like, I love how you're not directing them to buy some specific technology. You're saying, here's what the problem is. You guys figure out the how. We'll tell you what, what the what is. And the what is fishing with just an MFA or it's enterprise identity solutions. And you, get, you can figure out which ones you want to deploy and then use TMF. Are there anything else that, like, if you had a, here's, I wish, top three things that agencies or organizations should do that they should be, you know, that they should, I like, I love having top three or top five lists. Uh, Rachel knows that, but are there something you would say, here's a top five things an organization should do to go towards yeah, well, zero Well, I mean, so, you know, our federal zero trust strategy has our, our top 20 things uh, or, or, or so forth. And I, I, you know, I'm a little loath to, to rank them in, in prior to order in that way, right. but I will tell you that there are, there are certainly, you know, some areas where we get a little bit more specific and a little bit more aggressive um, in those and, and and because of how important that they are, right? And I just we just talked about MFA for a while. Um, we talk 
um, quite a bit about encryption yeah. in transit in uh, in the federal zero trust strategy, and in particular the importance of encryption inside the network of not just mm-hmm. assuming that because it's in your internal network that it is fine, um, and uh, in particular really you know making sure to talk about the fact that um, it's not just a confidentiality thing, right? It's not just about people being able to see the traffic. It's also about being able to modify that that traffic, um, and so you could take traffic that doesn't seem sensitive on its face, but if modified in a certain way, you know, could possibly cause different things to happen that are unexpected, right? And so we we really we lean on that. Um, we also talk a little bit about the tension between uh, network level visibility and network level encryption, and um, you know, and some of the risks uh, involved there that that agencies should consider. Um, and um, we also, so another another area which you go into quite a bit of detail on as a theme is around application layer security, right? So one of the big themes here of this whole conversation has really, I think you could characterize an element of zero trust as moving, you're shifting the emphasis away some from sort of layer four network level stuff to more application layer concerns, mm-hmm. um, protocols, logs, and things that are that are are more um, you know, that are more varied, and uh, in particular because that's where a lot of the attacks are. They're in application-level vulnerabilities where the application doesn't behave the way you think it should. And, you know, it could be things as as simple as just looking at the URL in a web application and changing one number to another number and wondering if it will work, and it, and it, it takes you to something you weren't supposed to see, right? Like, we're, we've, we are trying to direct some more attention on those kinds of vulnerabilities. Um, they're you know, agencies do care about those things and they, they, they scan for different kinds of application layer vulnerabilities and, and some agencies, you know, will do, will do more work to really dig in and, and test those things. And I think what we're really looking, calling for is a, a pretty consistent bar. And, you know, mm-hmm. as a, we, we certainly want vulnerability disclosure programs to play a huge role in that. That is, that is a, you know, a reality check of having the world be able to, to, to tell you when they find things that don't work. Um, we want agencies to really have consistently strong muscles for that kind of stuff inside their organization and you know things that no WAF no web application firewall is going to catch things that no scanner is going to detect but things that you know require really analyzing how the application works those are a few areas nice those are great places to start and if you haven't already to our audience definitely read the strategy and not just apply it in government, but apply it in industry. Cause I, you know, I've read in the past and it definitely says here's, and if you look at the order, there's some things that you do in 30 days, 60 days, 90 days. If you take that order, you can definitely prioritize and come up with your own priorities. So I, I know we're coming up on time and like to be respectful of, of uh, your schedule, Eric. Uh, but I'm always curious. I'm always curious. What are you reading? You're reading any good books or have you, you got a finger on a great book that you know is coming out, um, you know, and it, and it could be security related or not. I mean, we had, uh, we had a guest on who was reading Dave Grohl's biography, which I didn't know he had a new one out. So I ran out and bought it. I'm always looking for great suggestions. Uh, man, um, <laughs> you know, my reading habits certainly do atrophy the busier I get in life. I can but, imagine. Yes. Uh, I, and I, I, although I have, I will say after watching the, the Dune movie, I'm rereading the Dune <laughs> books. And those are, those are, those are yes. great airplane, airplane fodder. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, I do find that a lot of these times how I follow things in the, the security world, it's a lot of, it's, 
it's splintered into a million pieces. It's a, you yes. know, it's on, it's on social media. It's yes. on, it's on Slack. It's through occasional blog posts. It's all these different places. Um, and so I, that's a little hard to just, you know, think of like one name to, to recommend. Right. right? But it's, right. I, I do think though, for me, it has been very important to just like stay out there, right? Like, yes. you know, keep out of the, stay out of the bubble and, uh, and, you know, see what people are actually talking and arguing about. And, yes. uh, especially when they argue. Exactly. It's my favorite. I, I mean, given that, given that, like you've done so much in terms of, public sector, non, you know, not profit and industry and government. Are, is there Ooh. any book you'd recommend as required reading for anyone in cyber, regardless of where they are and keep it very open-ended. I mean, it could be technical, non-technical. I'm just kind of curious. Is there a book that says, I wish more people read that. I, if um, you have one. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I put you on the spot there. Because, that's really hard. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I do think, um, these, these are not books, right. But I, there's definitely some essays that have been really impactful on me. There, there's a classic one, which, you know, a lot of people know as you know, reflections on trusting trust. Um, I, I don't know if you're familiar, but it, it is a, a sort of famous speech given by uh, a professor whose name is slipping my mind, um, which is embarrassing, but uh, is essentially this idea of, you know, if you compromise the compiler for the code, then, you know, and then, replace out what you did your 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 attack can live forever undetected right. and mm -hmm. you know it both is is intellectually interesting for you know the recursive aspect of it as well as just um you know helps helps kind of remind you of it's all software under the hood and uh yeah. you know there's there's sometimes there's no one particular policy that can help you you know another thing i i, I want to just from like a least privileged perspective Another paper that was really impactful on me, I, I saw it at a presentation at CCC some years ago, um, was uh, by Joanna Rutkowski, who's called The Stateless Laptop, and involved this, I, this theoretical idea of a laptop where all the firmware of each of the components inside the computer was put onto like a removable card in a write-only or read-only form. Um, and, you know, it just... It, it's a laptop that's probably not going to exist because the economics, you know, are very challenging right. with something like this. But the the idea was, you know, all these places that attacks can live within your computer. Like we're now more familiar today than we used to be right. with like hard drive microcontroller compromise things that are, right. that sound very esoteric, but they're like the eight different places in your laptop where things can live and, and happen. And that idea of like just taking them, moving them all out, and having them in a immovable place, and and also putting it in your control. I, it was a you know, even if it ends up just being a thought experiment, it was for me, uh, it kind of reminded me to, that it, you can always kind of rethink the what you see around you. Yes, exactly. And that's how you get there, right? I mean, even these kind of, you know, a guy, it'll never happen. But nowadays, we just don't know. <laughs> Anything's possible. And, you know, in getting all these great minds together and bringing in all these diverse thinkers, that's how we get there, you know, to, to make things like that a reality and, and get I don't know. I mean, it's. I'm always trying to be an optimist, Eric. You know, are we going to get ahead of this cybersecurity threat? I mean, is is that in the cards for us in the years ahead? Well, I told you the things that motivate me is that there are there are things that work. Like we, yeah, it definitely. is actually possible to take the things you see around you, the bad things that happen to people, and if you can you can do something about them. The bigger problem is, you know, it's kind of the non technical part of it. It's the organizational right. change management. It is. 
Um, just getting, getting people to focus, getting priorities aligned and following through. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, I have to say, it's been great to see this administration's focus on cybersecurity because I, I think that helps, you know, kind of all boats rise when we're all kind of collectively thinking about the problem together. And that gets me excited for the future for sure. Mm-hmm. So, well, Eric, thank you so much for joining us De- today. This has definitely. been wonderful. I mean, we could have, you know, probably 18 conversations <laughs> on these topics because they're just, just scratching the surface. So thank you so much for sharing your insights and perspective with our listeners today. This has been wonderful. Oh, absolutely. And thank you for the interesting questions. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. Awesome. All right. And to all of our listeners out there, thanks again for joining us this week. Don't forget to subscribe. It's right there, ready to be smashed. And you get a fresh episode with Eric right in your email inbox on Tuesday. I'm everyone. Be safe. Thanks for joining us for the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit forcepoint.com slash gov podcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, or Stitcher. 